Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. Be reading the first 15 verses of that chapter. Then we'll turn to the sermon text, Romans 2, verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And now turning in the New Testament to Romans chapter 2, the first five verses. Romans 2. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Please be seated. 
Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, the psalmist prays, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What an amazing thing to pray to the true and the living God who sees our hearts. And yet, Father, that is our prayer this evening, that through this, this word that you would search us. And show us those things that apply to us, those things that are of urgent necessity for the sake of repentance, but also those things that are of urgent necessity for the sake of faith. And in all these things, Father, help us, help us all to humble ourselves and to flee to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. There's so many Christians that have been helped by uh, the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I, I imagine many of you have, have read it. There are portions of it that are well known. One of them is a section where he discusses pride. And he has a particular insight there that I think is, is helpful, where he says, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And then he goes on for the killer line. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Uh, The reason that we dislike pride in others and judge them for it is because we have so much of it in ourselves. We could say this, of course, for for lots of of particular sins, but he chooses pride, which many uh, would say is uh, the greatest sin of all. In our passage this evening, Paul is uh, kind of uh, skewering us in a similar way. Uh, he's, he's not just interested in sin, he's interested in those who sit in judgment over sin and who also commit the very same things. That's kind of what he's, he's doing here in this, this long argument that he began in chapter 1, verse 18. He takes up to chapter 3, verse 20, where he's making his case that all are under sin, whether Jew or Gentile, all of us are under sin, that there is no one who is born Righteous, And in fact, what we saw last time is that God has, is revealing his righteous wrath against the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth of God, who suppress the revelation of God, who turn it upside down and twist it. And so worship idols and worship other things. And in that, that argument in chapter 1, verses 19 to 32, he says, everyone is without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. And the reason why is because God has made it so clear. He's made it so obvious that he is there. They know better because God has revealed himself. But he begins his argument here in exactly the same way. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Why? Because he says, you know better. You judge and yet you do the same things, he says. And so he's setting up a parallel argument. The nations... They're without excuse because they know God is there. They see his glory. They see his handiwork. And he says, but you also are without excuse because you not only have God's general revelation in creation, you have his special revelation. You have his law. And so Paul is zeroing in here on the problem. And the problem is not 
to, to spot the sin of the Gentiles. The, the problem is not to, to call that sin for, for what it is or, or to make a judgment about what sin deserves. That's not the problem. The problem is this, that they spot the sin, they can call it the sin, they can judge the sin and do the same things and practice those exact same things. That's the problem. Now, the way Paul goes about this, he kind of sets up his readers. It's a rhetorical device. It's called a diatribe. He kind of leads you on through these, these questions. And he moves from the third person talking about they, and all of a sudden he shifts to the second person. He starts talking about you. Moving from the nations ostensibly to a Jewish audience. He doesn't name them yet, but that's who he's talking to, his Jewish listeners. And he had been talking about the nations, Listing off their, their wickedness, their iniquities, their, their rebellion. And you can hear in the background his Jewish readers cheering him on, saying, Amen. Hit him again, Paul. Right? See how shameful the nations are? That's right. Look at all their idolatry. How typical. They're filled with sexual morality. How vile. And then Paul springs the trap. So why do you do the same things? He's caught them. The you here is the Jews, chapter 2, verse 17. He doesn't say it right away, right? He leads them into it in a very subtle way, in exactly the same way that Nathan does with David. David has sinned with Bathsheba, has killed her husband. Nathan comes with this story about this poor man, the rich man, the rich man taking this poor man's lamb, which he loved. It doesn't even finish the story. And David says, that man deserves to die. He deserves to die. Nathan says, you are that man. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, you're not only passing judgment on others in this, but you're passing judgment on yourself in the same way that David did. David's hypocrisy is seen in the fact that he seized a man's wife, had her husband killed, and yet he talks about a man who seizes and slaughters a lamb, an animal, and says he deserves to die. He doesn't realize that he just pronounced judgment upon himself. This is what I deserve. Doesn't even see it. David saw the speck in his brother's eyes so clearly and pronounced the righteous judgment against it, made the declaration, but he doesn't see himself. And yet in all this, he judges himself. And that's exactly what Paul says such individuals do here. It's in light of the judgment of God, which he introduces in verse 2. He says, now we know, all of us know, we all agree on this, right, that God rightly judges all who practice such things. Now, what are the such things? It's pretty clear. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 29 to 31. He has a long list there of evil, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, deceit, etc., etc., etc. All these things, that's what he has in view. And Paul says here, well, you are right to condemn sinful behavior because God does too. The only problem is that God condemns sinful practice in anyone who does these things without prejudice. Literally, he says, God judges according to the truth. And he's assuming their agreement with him. He says, we know this, right? Yes, they know this. And yet they persist in doing what is condemned. What's condemned by them, they pronounce their judgment. He says, you're taking the place of God. You are judges, but God agrees with you. And so the sin he's exposing here is their hypocrisy. You judge others, and yet you commit the same sin. And Paul's saying, you need to be careful about what you say in this regard. Christ said the same thing. With the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. According to the way you judge, you're going to be judged as well. Because you're showing that you know better. 
But before we go too far, it's important to point out that the word practice here makes all the difference. What is Paul talking about? Everybody sins, including Christians. The best of Christians sin every single day. But here what he's talking about is wickedness as a lifestyle. He's talking about a committed life of sin, practicing sin without repentance. It's being wavered in sin. But the whole time judging others, looking down upon them, scorning them, condemning them, and yet doing the same things. That's what he's concerned about. But it raises a question. What, what explains this hypocrisy? How could these people who had the law of God, how could they go so wrong in this? And he says in verses 3 and 4, it's because they misjudge God in two ways. They misjudge God in two ways. The first way is this. They were thinking too lightly of God's justice. Too lightly of God's justice. We see that in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God, the judgment of God. To think that you can practice sin and yet escape God's judgment, he says here in his justice, is not just arrogant, it's delusional. They judge others, that's presumption, that's hypocrisy, and yet they practice the same things. To minimize Uh, This is minimizing the seriousness of sin in light of the righteousness of God. All sin deserves God's holy wrath. It deserves his judgment. It deserves his eternal punishment. But their sin is seen in this, or we could say the extent of their sin is seen in this spiritual hoax that is clouding their eyes and is so confusing them to think that they are exempt from God's righteous judgment. That they can look around the world and condemn this person, that person, lay judgment upon everybody, do the same things, and think that somehow they will escape God's justice. But see, what Paul says here is that God's justice opposes everyone. Everyone that practices wickedness. Doesn't matter whether they're a Gentile or a Jew. It's almost unbelievable. It's almost unbelievable. How could somebody uh, who confesses God get to the point where they would have such a superficial understanding of God's righteousness. They would slight and scorn God's righteousness. That's a problem. And that explains in part where they are. But there's a second problem too, where they misjudge God. And it's this, that they think too loosely of God's grace. We see this in verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. When he says not knowing, he's sort of playing with them. Of course they know this. Do you not know this? They've forgotten. They've forgotten the greatness of God's goodness to them with regard to their sin. And you see this testimony in the New Testament in particular that God is patient. He's so patient with us. He forbears with us in all of our weaknesses and our sin. Why does he do this? It's in order that we would repent. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. 
And Peter, in the context there, is saying there's some people that misunderstand God's patience. Why is God not actively inserting himself and punishing every single wrong thing that I do? Why is he not hounding me in his justice? Why is he not looking over my shoulder and constantly squashing me? And some people get the wrong idea and say, I don't think he's, he cares. I don't think he's watching. I don't think he sees that he knows. And God says, that's not the right angle. He's doing this in the hope that you'll repent. But so the question here is, will God put up with such contempt for his patience forever? No. This is a serious problem. It's one thing to be so arrogant that you judge the sin in others and yet practice the very same things for which you judge them. But it's another thing to be so calloused to forget how God's grace brought you to your knees to repent of these very things. Which is a greater problem, to slight God's justice or to slight God's kindness? Which is worse, to, to dismiss what your sins deserve or to dismiss the grace that saves you from what your sins deserve? That's his argument. They've totally misunderstood God. They've misjudged him on these two counts. And of course, the point of this is not to think too lightly about our sin in light of who God is. We should tremble at the thought of God's judgment. And we should rejoice in the thought of his grace. All who practice sin, uh, he is saying here, seriously misjudge their position before God. When they're taking God's place as judge and condemning other sin, that's arrogance. When they're defying God's place as judge by practicing the same sins, that's hypocrisy. When they're disdaining God's justice and despising God's grace, that is folly. All these things are wrong to think then that God doesn't see or he doesn't care, or doesn't, is not going to act. You're deceiving yourself if that's what you think. And this is what Paul addresses in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows according to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Do not be conceived, be deceived. God does see, God does care, God will act. He concludes in this terrifying verse in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what is the end for this person who continues to do these things, does not repent and continues on this way. There is a tremendous danger here, he says, for the hard-hearted sinner. And what is dangerous is what awaits them. And he uses this phrase in verse 5 of storing up. It's a word that we in Scripture, it's usually attached to delightful things, wonderful things, storing up treasure, storing up your crops, storing up for your inheritance. These are wonderful blessings, but that's not how it's used here. It's storing up wrath. And here we see a parallel storing up just like the nations that he described in chapter one. The nations they know, they're without excuse, and yet they practice sin. And so they can expect God's wrath because of their hard hearts. That's the same argument makes here for the Jews. They know they're without excuse, and yet they practice these sins. And so what is in store for them? God's wrath. He says, because of their hard hearts. 
What are they storing up? God's righteous judgment, he says, on the day of wrath. The day of wrath is the day of the Lord. It's the, it's the outpouring of God's judgment. It's an unleashing of God's righteous judgment. The Red Sea, the flood, Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, small potatoes. Nothing. A symbol compared to this. The scripture tells us no place to hide, no place to run. There is no sanctuary. It says men will beg the mountains to fall upon them so they can escape the white hot anger of God. And this is true for all. Jew or Gentile. All are without excuse. So there's really a twofold warning here. The first warning is practicing sin. It doesn't matter who you are. Without excuse. To continue to practice sin without repentance, without regard for God's righteousness, or to have tasted of his, his grace and to scorn that, to have contempt for that. There's an incredible warning here from Paul. Not from Paul, right? From God, who sees, who sees to your heart, to the bottom of your heart. But I think there's a finer edge to what he's saying here for us this evening. And it is that, that warning of those who, who judge others and yet practice the same things. This is, seems to be his great concern for his Jewish audience, which applies to us as well. And we need to be very clear. He's not saying that we should avoid value judgments about right or wrong. That we're not supposed to make any judgments about what's true or false. The word of God teaches us that we have a responsibility to discern. Uh, to understand, we are to, to test the spirits, we are to, to look for fruit, good fruit, for assessing the health of a, of a tree. These are the things we're supposed to do. That's not his point at all. His point is that we are to avoid hypocrisy, judging others as we do the same things. Looking down upon others while we coddle sin and refuse to repent. Not grieving over that sin, not wanting to turn from it, not even wanting uh, to, to turn to God. And yet, still expecting to receive mercy from God, from the God who judges in in perfect righteousness. And Paul says, how foolish this is, this dismissing God's righteousness on the one hand, is disdaining God's grace on the other hand. And if you find yourself in your seat this evening saying secretly, I hope so-and-so is listening. Well, I hope you are too. I am. Which of us is not exposed by this? Think for a moment the balance of the teaching of Christ. He warned his disciples about hell. He warned them about money. But what's the thing perhaps, perhaps, he warned them about the most? It was hypocrisy. In the Sermon on the Mount, this takes center piece, center place in, in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not do things just to be seen or just to be heard. Don't put on this appearance. This is his great concern in Matthew 23, again and again. You Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites. And this is the very thing he warns his disciples about. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, this, this insidious thing that spreads invisibly and secretly, yet powerfully. He's greatly concerned about this, about a person who has a divided heart and is serving two masters. On the one hand, I'm trying to look good religiously in front of everybody, but in my heart, I'm I'm coddling and playing with sin. The word hypocrite means to to wear a mask, 
It comes from the Greek stage. It's somebody who puts on a mask. You see what part they're playing, and it hides the real person behind them. This is the very thing that uh, Scripture is concerned about. Who is the real person? Because if all you are spiritually is this mask, that's not real. This is a danger, a tremendous danger. But if you see this in yourself, if you can admit that there's even a hint of this, then I would say this evening there is hope for you. For all of us recovering hypocrites, there's hope. Let's not forget the story we read this evening of David. David repented. His hypocrisy was exposed and he repented. And he did not die for his sin. And you see, this evening, it's it's always true, no matter what the passage is, no matter what sin we're talking about, there is always hope for those who trust in Christ. But only for them. Only for those who trust in Christ is there hope. Who look to his life and not looking to their own life. Who look to his obedience, not to their obedience. Who look to to his life and look to his love and, and his sacrificial death. It's that person who says, the last thing I would ever trust in is my obedience and my integrity and my own sincerity as well. You see, the death of Christ revealed what the righteousness of God demanded for the guilt of our sin. And yet that's the very thing that Christ has satisfied. This passage is talking about judgment. It's talking about the day of wrath. And and this is the way we should think of the cross. The cross is a day of wrath. It's a day of judgment, but it's also the day of our salvation. Because that was God's judgment against our sin. That's what the cross is. It's God exhausting all of his righteous wrath against our sin. And Christ took it all away. Romans 3 says that God put forward his son as a propitiation for our sin. That's what propitiation means. Not only does it cover our sin, but it exhausts all the wrath of God and wins the favor of God for us. That Christ bore all of our guilt and our condemnation. So that none of that righteous wrath remains against us. That's what the gospel is. So that God can look at sinners like you and me and declare us forgiven of our sins and acceptable in the sight of God. Why? Because we're casting ourselves upon Christ. That beautiful, pure, perfect, unassailable righteousness of Christ. That's our only hope. That's our only plea. And you see, a passage like this reminds us that the day of the Lord is coming. This unmeasured outpouring of God's wrath. But brothers and sisters, our day of judgment is not in the future. It's in the past. It was at Calvary. That was our day of judgment. There is no condemnation that awaits us. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The day of the Lord for us will be a day of salvation, not a day of wrath. First Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the cross is all about, that outpouring of God's righteousness, which was exhausted. But it was also the outpouring of his kindness, which cannot be exhausted and will never end. There's great hope for us this evening. Are you bothered by your hypocrisy? Do you see in yourself this tendency to judge others and yet do the same things? Do you fear what you could become? I do. Do you grieve over your sin? Do you hate yourself when you do these things? Do you desire to turn from it? Do you see the righteousness of God? Have you tasted and felt his his patience, his forbearance, 
his grace and his kindness, then I would tell you, be encouraged. This sounds like repentance. It sounds like the desire to desire to be a genuine and sincere follower of Jesus Christ. It's very simple, brothers and sisters. Let us confess our sins, including our hypocrisy, and let's look to Christ for forgiveness. Let's look to the Holy Spirit to help us to die to sin and walk in sincerity and and in truth and look to the promises of God that are given to us who are looking to Christ. And I would remind you of the importance, not just to, to hear the warnings of God, but to hear the promises of God. I didn't read you that whole passage from Galatians 6, because it goes on. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Then he says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not be deceived. God's promises are true. And he will not abandon you to your sin. Don't give up. Continue to sow. Continue to persevere. Continue to look to him. And believe the gospel that sin will not reign. It's grace that reigns in righteousness. And it leads to eternal life. Let his kindness and his patience And his forbearance lead you to repentance again and again and again. Because these are the things that will lead you to Christ. You should do this. I beg you to do this. You have no excuse. Neither do I. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we praise you for your word. And this evening we see again that it cuts like a knife, like a two-edged sword. But it is also balm. It is an aloe that, that soothes and comforts. As was true for David, we pray the same is true for ourselves, that as we repent, that there is forgiveness. That you will not pay us according to what our sins deserve. But instead, according to your promise... You grant us what we need and what we have in Christ our Savior. Oh, Father, we pray that you deliver us from being false, from judging others, to be true in private and public. Grant us such growth, such honesty, such fruit honesty. And so, Father, we pray that you grant us repentance and faith. This we pray and these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.